this week on Life and Faith. I can use my phone to just scroll through endless photos on Instagram, but I could also use my phone to make an image that would be art for the ages. So it's kind of up to me. Do I want it to be the ultimate device or do I want it to actually, whenever I pick it up, to be an instrument? We feel this impulsion to tell our story, to bear witness of the mystery that is us. The Romans took for granted their right to massacre men and to enslave women and children. It was just that feeling of stepping out that seemed so daunting. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. Now, Natasha, every Sunday morning at precisely 9am, my phone makes a sound and it tells me how many hours I've averaged per day on my phone for that week. (laughs) Yep, me too. I mean, 9am Sunday, it just feels like a real guilt time for that. I was so shocked the first time it happened. I was like, what? 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 (laughs) Someone was tracking this and now you're telling me? I'm horrified. Yeah, this is how I'm experiencing it too. This Mm. is not a happy moment in my week. Are you, are you going to tell us what it is, Simon? No, I'm too embarrassed to say. <laughs> it, it seems bad. Um, yeah. I don't well, know. Well, I read that the average Australian, it's up at around five hours or something per day. So yeah, it's a I lot. Yeah, I read that too and I'm at least getting there. I can Ooh. admit to that. I'm feeling virtuous because the last few weeks, because I've been away on holiday and I've been moving house, <laughs> there's I haven't had a lot of time for my phone. And so it's been a lot healthier. There must be a way of tricking the phone somehow. <laughs> That's know, the a better result. <laughs> now, we've been thinking about this a lot lately because we've had a visitor from the US, Andy Crouch, who has been here for CPX to deliver the Richard Johnson lecture. Uh, the topic of that lecture was disconnected, why technology keeps disappointing us. And the lecture, I must say, did not disappoint. I think it was, you know, possibly the best we've ever had. He was so good, um, so interesting. And he's definitely equipped to speak to us on this topic. He's the author of, among other things, The TechWise Family. And then with his daughter, Amy, there's a follow-up, My TechWise Life. But his most recent book is called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. He's written a lot about this. Yeah, absolutely. I I loved it too. There were many challenging things that he said about technology, but I'd say it's ultimately a really hopeful message. And this is much deeper, actually, than just being smarter about how you use your phone or your computer. Tricking your devices. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. It is a really enriching conversation about the things in modern life and the way we use technology in ways that either diminish us as people or help us to thrive. And I really felt as though this is something that everyone can relate to, whatever your level of technology use or what that looks like. We all have kind of a sort of love-hate relationship, I think, with our technology. Absolutely. Now, in the life we're looking for, Andy writes about the fact that as babies, we spend hours staring into the faces of those who care for us. And we're, in a sense, hungry for connection at that point in our lives. And these days, a lot of us spend similar hours staring into our phones or our iPads. What's the connection between those two things? I think what we find somewhat mesmerizing about our screens, I think there's a couple dimensions of it, but one is that... These are personalized devices that are 
optimized to make us feel attended to. That is my phone. In fact, I have to be careful how I refer to it because it is sitting here, though I turned it <laughs> on to airplane mode. But like there's a set of words that if I said them, it's like always listening and ready to say, oh, hey, Andy, what, how can I help? You know, yeah. and it's not just the voice interface. It's the screen. The notifications is actually designed to be so responsive to me, so easily doing. At least this is my dream. This is why I buy it and why I keep staring at it. It's, you know, so responsive. And I think we are looking for that kind of, in a way, that responsiveness in the world. We're looking for someone or something that actually is paying attention to me, mm. <laughs> knows what I want, wants to give me what I want. And of course, the first dream of the baby was this would be the mother, you know, the father too. But there is a special bond between, you know, babies and whoever plays that maternal role, the nursing role. And uh, the baby just instinctively believes with some justification that there's someone in the world who wants to pay attention to them. Mm. And none of us would be adults if someone hadn't fulfilled that role to some extent. But the baby also discovers that person is not totally reliable. The world is not always paying attention to me, but my device is always paying attention to me. Yeah. So maybe I'd rather actually have a device than have a face. Mm. Why is it problematic? The thing is paying attention to you. It does amazing it does. things. And yet we sense it isn't right. enough. It's not fulfilling what we need. I actually think at this moment, this is an unsettled question in mm. advanced, what we call advanced societies. I think uh, different nations may ultimately answer it somewhat differently. The Japanese are way ahead of other technology mm. dependent countries, let's say, in, uh, for example, care robots. Like maybe as you age, it's enough to have a little baby seal, robotic seal that just sits with you and purrs when you touch it and seems to respond to you, even though it's just AI and just robots. I tend to myself feel like that's not a good substitution, but I mean, I don't know if I can prove to you that a sufficiently responsive device <laughs> is not as good as a human face because any human being, there's going to be a kind of vulnerability in trusting them. And maybe we can make devices that are so good at seeming to care for us that it doesn't, doesn't really matter that they only seem. At the same time, my yeah, own I view. Say, I know you don't think this. <laughs> well, but I don't know how I'd you convince you. What's your inclination? But my instinct. inclination is that this is a terrible, tragic bargain to say I'm going to give up on the relationship I was looking for the moment I was born. No one is born looking for a screen. We're all born looking for a face. The problem is in the interim or in the course of our lives, that becomes a really complicated, we find out what a complicated world we're in. Yeah. So can I prove to you it's better to live with the vulnerability of faces than with the brittleness of screens? So part of the problem with the whole computational world is it's actually very brittle. It can do some things insanely well, but there's a lot of things it doesn't do well at all. Yeah. And there's a lot of situations where it actually can't be of very much help. And there's many, many circumstances of life where in the end, I think what all of us would want if we were really thinking deeply and choosing wisely is we would want another person with us, not a device with us. Mm. But I think this is the open question of our society is when you actually look at the choices we're making, how much time I spend looking at a glowing rectangle versus how much time I spend looking at a face, how much time I spend chatting with people over my direct messaging system on Instagram or Twitter, or wherever you DM versus how much time do I spend talking to my spouse? I mean, if you just look at what economists call your revealed preferences, mm -hmm. we're all deciding, oh, actually, I'll take the virtual. Thank you. But when you ask people to reflect, 
most people would say, I wish I had someone I could talk to. I wish I had that level of trust. But that does take a kind of work and a kind of faith, in a sense, that it will be worth it. And I, I can't guarantee to anyone that it's going to be worth it. Well, tell us about this study among teenagers and their reaction yeah, super to interesting. Super interesting. their parents. Yeah, I thought we, this was uh, really interesting. It's super interesting. So my daughter and, and I, it really is my daughter's book. And my daughter wrote a book called My TechWise Life. It's about growing up in a family that tried to be intentional about technology and what <laughs> happened. And she would say it turned out actually really well. She's thrilled that we had all kinds of limits and choices that most of her friends' families you know, weren't mm. making for whatever reason. She worked with some folks to do some really interesting research. And one of the things they did is they surveyed about a thousand adolescents, I guess you'd say, like uh, I think it was ages maybe 15 to 21. So including some young young adults, adults, let's say, and asked them, among other things, if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? (laughs) (laughs) So those of us who are parents, it'd be really interesting to hear, right? What would your teenager say? The most common answer was... I wish my parents would spend less time on their phones and more time talking to me. Mm. This is what the kids want. (laughs) And we tend to construct a lot of these social conversations or arguments about technology in terms of, oh, the kids, you know, uh, are good at the digital stuff. They want the digital stuff. The parents aren't good at the digital stuff. They're old fuddy-duddies who don't Mm. want it. And this is not what the research shows at all. The research suggests everyone's ambivalent about it. Uh, Some people are more adept than others. Younger people are more adept. But they're adept at something they're not sure that they want. And when they see their own parents acting the way we think kids act, that is sort of absorbed in their phones. They're like, I wish my parents would talk to me. Yeah, interesting. Now, the great promise of technology is we will no longer have to do, you know, X. Yeah. Right? You know, wash my clothes by hand or build a fire every night to stay warm, whatever right. it is. We'll now be able to do Y and move easily from town to town. We can drive, we can fly, all those sorts of things. Yeah. These are huge gifts to us, aren't they? Right. And yet, these advances that we don't want to be without, it seems, but they do kind of lose their luster uh, quite quickly, don't they? Uh, interesting. In many cases, yes, maybe not all. Mm. But I think it relates to the fact that We adopt technology for basically two reasons. One is expanded capabilities, and the other is relieved burdens. That's um, what you said. Well, I'll no longer have to do this tedious uh, thing, and I'll be able to do this amazing thing that I couldn't do before. But all technology, I've come to call this the innovation bargain. There's two other shadow promises, you could say, that come with every, every adoption of every single thing human beings have ever used as a tool or instrument or device. And those are... Now, yes, you'll be able to do this thing, but you'll no longer be able to do this other thing. Yeah. And the other is, yes, you'll no longer have to do this thing, but now you will have to do this thing. So we adopt it because I'll be able to and I won't have to. But along with the adoption comes, now you'll no longer be able to do something you could do very readily before or that was very natural to do before, you'll forget, you'll lose the ability to do it. I mean, for example, if I had to make a fire every night, I'd be in trouble in some ways. Like, uh, I do know how to build a fire, but I don't necessarily know how to find all the wood I need. I I live in a society that's made it, like, impossible to build a fire every night. I could not do that. Even though my ancestors in my part of America, which is a cold part of the country... Every winter, they would do that routinely. But now it is that I lack certain abilities. I I remember, this is a few years ago. I'm better at splitting wood than I used to be. But when I was a young man, I remember splitting wood with my dad, who was more adept at it. And he said, are you giving each piece of wood a name? He's like, you're going so slow. (laughs) 
because I barely know how to do this basic skill. Mm. So part of why we find this disillusionment on the other side of the adoption of mm. new tech, it's not that the thing has stopped working or delivering the reason we bought it. It's that we didn't reckon with the diminishment of our lives, which is sometimes very hard to spot. So now that I have a furnace in my basement and I just set the thermometer, I mean, in a way that seems so lovely. Like, oh, I just Ooh. tell it I want it to be so many degrees and it does it. I don't even know how it does it. What I don't maybe reckon with is all that I've lost, which you'd rediscover if you actually go out to split some wood, you know, to gather the wood, to split the wood, to stack the wood, to bring it in, to light the fire, to sit by the fire. There's all these joys, actually, which involve hard work and involve the chance of slicing open your hand. (laughs) But they have a kind of fulfillment that setting the thermostat doesn't. And I no longer can do a lot of that. Like, it's just no longer available to me. Andy has some perceptive observations to make about what is sometimes lost in the pursuit of the dream of technology. Yeah, this feels like something that we hear and talk about a lot, but the way he talks about it is quite confronting. You know, we really are more connected than ever, but somehow that doesn't seem to solve our desire for true connection. We don't need connection. Connection is not the thing we need. Mm. Trust is what we need to flourish as human beings. And mere connection does not produce trust. In fact, actually, strangely, trust, uh, and this is something I've learned from a psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, who's a really interesting writer and author and speaker in his own right. Kurt says, trust is built through rupture and repair. I actually only trust you on the other side of some kind of rupture. It can be as simple as absence and presence. So uh, this happens in the early development of human beings, the infant Uh, the mother or the father is in the room and then the parent leaves the room. And this is a big deal for an infant to have the caregiver leave the room. But then the caregiver comes back in a healthy, normal environment that we would all wish for our children. And in that moment, the child learns, I can trust you. You're going to go away, but you're going to come back. Mm -hmm. I actually trust you in a way that I wouldn't trust you if you were always here. Mm -hmm. Because what happens if you ever have to leave? Mm -hmm. So that's the most basic level, absence and presence. There's also failure and recovery. So when something goes wrong in the environment around us and we find a way through it and past it together, we trust each other more. And then in the Christian frame, we would say there's a third layer, which is sin and forgiveness, where there's actual betrayal or not just failure, but fault. And on the other side of that saying, okay, you really were at fault, but you have said you're sorry, I'm going to forgive you. And that's where trust comes from. And that's what I actually need to have community with you. I don't need constant connectivity with you and mere connectivity. That is having your direct message address or something is of no use in the thing that I most need, which is how do I come to know that my neighbor, my coworker, my family member, my long lost friend can be trusted and the connectivity. I mean, it doesn't hurt that I have your cell phone number, but it's irrelevant. It's not not the thing we need. So you can connect everybody in the world. But unless you give them opportunities to build trust, it's going nowhere. Okay, what about our physical selves? We are embodied beings. In what ways does modern technology harmonize with that or perhaps undermine it? Well, this is what, where it's, I mean, very clear something's gone really wrong because we're actually living through, uh, we did have a global pandemic recently that was quite notable. <laughs> but long before that and long after that is just a footnote in epidemiology will be the first non-infectious epidemic in the history of humanity. The first time there's been a a massive global public health crisis not caused by a bacteria or a virus, and it's called metabolic syndrome. 
and it is the constellation of disorders of the human body that include high blood pressure, uh, high blood sugar, or diabetes, or prediabetes, heart disease, uh, high cholesterol, and overweight. Uh, and all of these, which are often seen together and are a identified syndrome that have real health threats, present and future for any given individual, and are costing our health systems unbelievable amounts of money, are absolutely the fruit of a century of technological innovation built on the idea that wouldn't it be nice if we never had to move our bodies? <laughs> wouldn't yeah. it be great if we would just stay sitting all the time? <laughs> that would be lovely. And honestly, back when human beings had no choice but to always be moving and always have to work with their bodies, that sounded great. Turns out, not so great. It's mm. the disaster of our own physical health is a direct result of a century of technological development that didn't ask, how do we make it better to be in a body? instead said, wouldn't it be great just to really get to ignore the body? This is Life and Faith, and we're speaking with Andy Crouch. In Andy's book, The Life We're Looking For, he describes human beings as heart, soul, mind, strength complexes. Now, that takes some unpacking, but it really does speak into this topic we're addressing here in surprising and, I think, really positive ways. To think rightly about technology and its proper place, and I really do believe technology has a very important place in human flourishing, we need to have some kind of orienting idea of what is it, what's the good life for human beings or what is it to be a human being. So I go back to the foundations of one of the great wisdom traditions of the world and the one that I adhere to, which is the, the Christian faith, which is rooted, of course, in the Jewish faith. And in the Jewish faith, the most central idea in it, in a way, is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And it, it says, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord alone. And that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. And Jesus actually adds all your mind and all your strength. So, this idea of heart, soul, mind, strength really captivated me because I realized this is a beautiful and accurate depiction of the fullness of being a person, which mm. is to say you are not just one of these things. You have bodily strength, but you're not just a body. You know, you're not just an organic machine, mm. right? You have a, a mind, but you're not just a brain. You're not just a thinking thing. You know, there's a phrase in the people use sometimes, brains on sticks. Yeah. Like we often treat, our, treat ourselves like brains mm. on sticks. And technology, by the way, interacts with our brains a lot and ignores the, the fact that we have a body. Yeah. But you're not a brain without a body. And you're not a body without a soul. And whatever exactly that means, it must somehow mean there's a depth of self that can't be limited to my physical existence. That yeah. all, I think most of us sense... I am me in some irreducible way, and the Christian tradition at least ties that to the reality of the soul. And you have heart, which is to say you're not mind without emotion. You have desire and will together. And I think there's a beautiful way of measuring, in a sense, fullness of life is am I living with allness, with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength? Mm -hmm. Am I living that way? Because actually, when I am living that way, that's a good life. So I, I'm a musician, among other things, and my instrument is the piano. And when I sit down at the piano, I feel this fullness of emotion because music touches emotion. My mind is very engaged if I'm playing something worth playing. Mm -hmm. It requires strength of various kinds, fine motor, gross motor, command of my body in a sense. And it touches the soul. Mm -hmm. And I think many things that we do that we love doing and that we love doing at our best and at their best, we love them because 
they activate heart, soul, mind, and strength together. The problem is very little of our technology is actually that helpful in developing all of these. And in some ways, I don't know that technology can develop it. Like if we had a, a digital piano that played itself when I was growing up, I mean, I might have had lots of music in the home, but I never would have become a pianist, right? Yeah. So for one thing, the technology can't give you shortcuts to becoming the kind of person who lives with heart, soul, mind, and strength. But also just a lot of these things... They're designed to help you think, you know, they're sort of thinking machines, but they're not designed to help you live with strength by and large. And they often don't actually help with our, the depth of our emotional lives. They give us very superficial emotions, lots yeah. of sentimentality, lots of outrage, but not a lot of deep emotion. Yeah. So I think technology is not helping us be what we actually maybe are meant to be, which is people who live with fullness of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, you, Andy, are for technology that enhances rather than takes away from kind of human capacity and human all the things you're talking about here, you know, heart, soul, mind, strength. And in, in that conversation, you're sort of drawing distinction between devices that don't ask much of us, uh-huh. or anything of us often, and instruments. Tell us about what you mean when you say yeah. instruments. Yeah, I was searching for a word to help us imagine a kind of technology that would not disengage us from the world and would actually develop us as in the fullness of what we're meant to be, I think. And it occurred to me, uh, partly because my wife is a scientist, she's an experimental physicist, and she uses scientific instruments, right? Now, these are very high tech. I mean, she uses lasers, she uses computer grade silicon, uh, all kinds of stuff that is indisputably high technology. But she doesn't use them in the sort of consumeristic, disengaged way that we often are invited to think of technology. She doesn't use them to displace her or to work on their own. She actually uses these instruments as a full, highly capable, highly skilled, highly trained human being to explore kind of the edges of the world in a way, the edges of what we know with her colleagues. It's always done collaboratively. And in that context... She is bringing her fullness, not just of mind, and you think of scientists and you think of brains, but in fact, science requires also very well-adapted and and learned physical ability. It's kind of strength involved in a lot of science. There's actually great heart in science done well. There's a kind of love of the beautiful, elegant results that we discover in the world when we go out and do an experiment on it. I don't know. Is there soul in it? My wife, I think, would say so. I think she would say that there's a a kind of a depth of self that's called forth by great scientific work. And yes, it's technological through and through, but it's also human through and through. So then I start thinking, that's the difference. That's the difference. Rather than, oh, yeah, the devices just do the work for us, Mm -hmm. you know? And I actually think all really worthwhile human endeavors do involve, we used to call them tools, and we still need tools, and we still benefit from learning to use tools. But I am using the word instrument to describe something that is quite technological, but functions as a tool rather than as a device, which would be something that just kind of operates without us. And you become subject to. Yes, right. You also, you become very dependent on devices in a way that you aren't in quite the same way on instruments. Or at least it doesn't, it sometimes feels, doesn't it, like our devices are sort of taking over and displacing us, whereas the instruments never do that. They wait mm-hmm. for us to bring the fullness of human humanness to our work and our life in the world. And then they take us further than we could go without it. And 
there's a lot of technology that can do that. And in fact, I think we all have them in our pockets because the, the phone that you have in your pocket can be the ultimate device, kind of displace you, replace you, distract you maybe, uh, mm. and diminish you. Or it can be the ultimate instrument. And, you know, I can use my phone to just scroll through endless photos on Instagram, which is device-like, I would say. But I could also use my phone to make an image, at least if I were a skilled, accomplished photographer, I could make an image that would be art for the ages, you yes. know, using that same thing. So it's kind of up to me. Do I want it to be the ultimate device or do I want it to actually, whenever I pick it up, to be an instrument instead? Well, you've um, written and spoken a lot about this and people are really interested. They do sense that you're touching something really important here. And uh, you can see people leaning forward when you, you're know, talking mm-hmm. in these ways. What do people tell you as you talk about some of the unforeseen consequences of technology? What do people tell you have been the most helpful things in that engagement? I love talking about this because it activates a sense of hope, I think. I think we sometimes feel a little out of control in this technological world. And I think that what I hear back when I describe this transition from devices to instruments is people actually feel very empowered to <laughs> sort of take charge of how they use their device. I mean, for a lot of people right now, it's the phone. We're, we're so early in this story of the smartphone. We're, we're very much still figuring out how to use it. And I'm actually very hopeful Um I think there are massive kind of corporate and financial forces that would like us to be quite disengaged and diminished by these devices. But actually, when I talk to people about it, I'm very hopeful that we're not going to let that happen. And so what happens is people come back, you know, a day or week or year later, and they say, hey, I made all these changes and how I use this thing and when I use it and how much I use it and, you know, what I use it for. And the more we use these things as instruments, the more joy we actually get out of them. You know, it can be a simple, um, there's this uh, app called Visco, which is one of many ways you can take photos on your phone and share it with other people. But Visco made this really interesting design decision quite intentionally, which is most phones these days have two cameras. One faces you, it's the selfie camera, and the other faces the world. And if you open up Instagram, the camera, the default camera is the selfie camera. It's optimized to take a picture of yourself. When you open up Visco, the default camera is the outward-facing camera, the camera that looks out at the world and says, hey, let me show you something beautiful. So people come back a month later and they're like, hey, I'm only using the outward-facing camera and mm. I've been making images, you know, with more intentionality than I used to. I'm not just sort of putting myself in the picture and trying to show kind of the highlight reel of my life. And there's this great sense of creativity and freedom and liberation from that hamster wheel of trying to make myself look impressive. Instead, look at this amazing world. Yes. So it's stuff like that. Yeah. that gives me a lot of hope. Right, Andy, you got a whole book on this, but a couple of you know, initial tips for people who are just starting out on this painful journey to break free of some of the worst parts of technology. And I'm very much listening with, this personally matters to me. What are some starting steps here that might help? I might think, first of all, about how to just make room in your day for being the person you are without the kind of assistance of the device or the responsiveness of the device. So I'm not about just getting rid of these things. I am about limiting them. So one way I'd suggest we think about is the way we begin our days and the way we end our days. So about four years ago, I realized that what I was doing when I got up in the morning and went downstairs, first I was making tea. That is an addiction I'm not going to give up. Uh, (laughs) Me either. I'm on that one with you. (laughs) But then I would pick up my phone. 
You know, so the first thing I did basically in the morning was pick up my phone and see what was on the screen. And I thought there has got to be a better way to start my day. So I decided I'm going to start my day not with my phone, but I'm actually going to go out of doors. So for over four years, every morning with a tiny number of exceptions, the first thing I do when I get up after I make my tea is I step outside. And it's so simple. It's almost ridiculous because it's so simple how I would say spiritually powerful this Mm. discipline, you could call it, this practice has been so transformative for me because I I step outside and and for one thing, I'm no longer in my my house or, you know, hotel room or wherever I'm staying. I'm out in this big world. I'm a very small creature in a very big world. There's aromas that I didn't choose, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. There's sounds. There's the sky. It may be raining, it may be snowing, it may be beautiful. You know, every day is different. And honestly, if I could only recommend one thing, it's start your day out of doors as a creature in creation, I would say. And the other is how do you end? And this is where for our family, it was just transformative to realize we should never have these things in our bedrooms. (laughs) Like So just end your day, but park it. We park all our phones in our house down away from the bedrooms. And um, when we go to that room and are preparing for bed, we're doing that just, again, as this kind of, uh, you know, vulnerable creature in a way, ending the day with our regrets, with our hopes for the next day, whatever. And if you're a person of prayer, that becomes a time when you pray. And if you have that phone with you, you will not pray during that time. You'll distract, you'll self-medicate you'll try to kind of wind down and there's something about ending the day without anything glowing that's just so healthy so i would start with just the pattern of our days as a person of faith what else has that faith contributed to your kind of sense of technology your hopes for it your concerns about it and the sort of i guess that sense of what is going to give us the full humanity here? Right. Uh, has there been a way in which you would say faith has contributed to your understanding? Yeah, two things come to mind. One is that the biblical framework, in a way, has helped me find language for something that I think a lot of us sense, um, which is this language of idolatry. Uh, mm-hmm. In the West, we sort of assume idols are things they have <laughs> in primitive religions or distant religions. But the biblical mindset is that every natural human society makes these images of God and tries to construct God or the gods, um, ultimately in, in humans' own likeness. So something you kind of something you make, dedicate self to worship. That's right. And the reason you worship it is you think that it's going to deliver you benefits you can't get any other way. Mm. And this idea that the things we make aren't neutral, but actually are infused with religious longing and with, and with a kind of devotion mm-hmm. and with a kind of hope that if we worship this enough, it will give us what we want. It's a very powerful way of interpreting choices that we make. And it's not just with technology, because you can make an idol of many, many things. <laughs> but it has helped me, in a way, it helps me be properly suspicious, you might say. Like, just don't take these things at face value. Maybe they're false gods, right? Mm. The idea of a false god is a really <laughs> helpful idea. Not all gods are created equal, and the ones that are created by people are not going to actually deliver. So that's been very helpful. Um, and then I would actually say, this may sound weird, but I think a very fundamental question behind all of this is, what do I do with the pain of life? <laughs> what do yeah. I do with suffering? Because in a lot of ways, what I'm dreaming of, when I dream of leisure, is I'm dreaming of this kind of 
disengagement from the losses, the disappointments, the griefs, the perhaps anticipated pain as well as actually experienced. This is a topic, you could say, that Christian faith in particular tackles head on because it's the story of the true God who does not, in Christian conception, doesn't have to enter into any pain. As we understand God as Christians, God is in his own being, just grateful to be in a community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of this community of love deciding to create a world and then deciding to enter into that world when it gets broken and not just enter into it in a kind of tentative way, but all the way in (laughs) to the heart of what's broken and messed up about it. And that story, I think, reframes what we do with the suffering we're trying to alleviate with the devices and says, actually, if you are willing to, you know, the Christian language for this is pick up your cross, which is a terrible image, (laughs) like when first used and still ought to be very unsettling. There will be some resurrection on the other side of that, that you actually can't foresee or control, but there will be a gift of grace. I actually think we need that kind of orientation towards suffering if we are going to move through life in a compassionate and healthy way. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Andy Crouch was in Australia with us at CPX to deliver the Richard Johnson Lecture. That lecture will be available in coming months in our Richard Johnson Lecture podcast, where you can catch up on the last eight of these annual public lectures. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Richard Johnson Lectures. Andy's latest book is The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. He's also the author of The TechWise Family and with his daughter Amy, My TechWise Life and a bunch of other books that are all strongly recommended. One of my favorites is Culture Making. We will put a list in the show notes. Please do send this episode on to people you think might appreciate it. There's a lot to think about and to process. And Natasha, I'm going outside and I'm going to leave my phone here. Great idea. Get that weekly screen time down, Simon. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to be taking a break now from the podcast. We will be back with more Life and Faith in a few weeks' time.